Greta Garbo, Anne Monroe, Dietrich and DiMaggio, Marlon Brando, Jimmy Dean on the cover of a magazine, Grace Kelly, Harlow Jean, picture of a beauty queen, Jean Kelly, Fred Astaire, Ginger Rogers, dance on air. They had style, they had grace, Rita Hayworth gave good face, Lauren Catherine, Lana too, Betty Davis, we love you. Ladies with an attitude, fellas that were in the mood, don't just stand there, let's get to it, strike a pose, there's nothing to it. I don't know about you, but there seems to be a lot of interest these days in the pursuit of stargazing. And no, I don't mean that we're all clamoring to watch reruns of The Sky at Night with Sir Patrick Moore. I am just about old enough to remember that. And training our telescopes upwards when darkness descends. I mean rather our current fascination with the cult of celebrity. Whether they be the stars of screen or the sports field, or in music or in the, in, in the music business, or so-called lifestyle gurus, we seem captivated, and our world seems captivated by their aura, and intrigued by the minutest detail of their lives. One only has to look at the vast array of celebrity gossip magazines available in our shops today. Hello, OK, heat just to see how interested we are. We pore over details of how they dress, how they furnish their homes, how they eat, and we're led to believe that they let us in to share their hopes and fears with us. And whether it is consciously or unconsciously, it would seem that to a certain extent we all model ourselves on them. Because, after all, we are shaped by the culture that is all around us and by the people that we spend time with, whether that be in the flesh or on the television screen or as we flick through the pages of a magazine. And so we're shaped by a culture that tells us we can have whatever we want, that I am all important and that me time is just so precious that we have to be ruthless to be successful, that beauty comes in one's eyes and that's a size zero, that commitment isn't fashionable, and that the 15 minutes of fame that Andy Warhol spoke of is there for the taking, just so long as we do whatever it takes to get it. We all replicate the behaviors of others. Whether it's following the fashion styles of Rachel Bilson or whatever Angelina Jolie happens to wear to that premiere that week or what Justin Bieber is singing about or whether we're that woman on the upteenth fad celebrity diet or the businessman who reckons that he too can be Alan Shuker in the office. But the scripture reading that we shared this morning suggests that we might train our eyes elsewhere, and that we might undertake some counter-cultural stargazing. Thus far in the second chapter of Philippians, Paul has been meditating on the person and the work of Christ. In the opening five verses, and then again in verses 12 to 18, 
we see him expand and detail about the character of Christ. And then in verses 6 to 11, Paul teases out some of the implications for our lives when we take into account these momentous truths about Jesus that he has set before us. So as we turn our focus to verses 19 to 30, which Rosemary read for us, we must see that this is not simply just some kind of aside where Paul shares some travel plans with us. In fact, the reality is that Paul just isn't quite finished in applying the truth about Christ from verses 6 to 11. In this section that we have read together, he's still applying this call and what it means for us to develop and grow into Christ-likeness. And he applies it specifically to the lives of the believers at Philippi, but also this morning to our lives. Paul shows great pastoral insight here. He knows that it is one thing to teach truth and call for obedience to that truth. But if we are really going to learn, uh, we need people to model our lives on. And so, here in these verses, Paul gives not some mere abstract examples, but concrete examples to the believers at Philippi through real people's lives that they would have known. And we have three models uh, in this chapter to be held up for scrutiny and emulation. According to Paul in verse 5, he wants us all to have the same mind that was in Christ Jesus. And he has already told us some of the details of what that means. Now he wants to focus our gaze on three real-life examples. Paul introduces us to two companions here. The first is Timothy, the co-author of his letter to the church at Philippi. But we're, we're left questioning and wondering, well, what are some of the chief characteristics of Timothy? Did he set his own agenda, striving for advancement and success? Did he, too, crave for his 15 minutes of fame? Did he want to try and make a name for himself? Such uh, desires, as we have seen earlier on, seem to be part and parcel of our life experience, but not for Timothy. So let's hone our view in to verses 20 and 22. The opening words of verse 20, Paul says, I have no one else like him. He is one of a kind. Paul here is letting us know quite clearly that Timothy is one of these people that he believes has the same mind and the same love and is of one accord uh, with him and with Christ. So Paul says, I have no one else like him. Here is a guy who shares Paul's sense of purpose and conviction. Paul and Timothy simply aren't just of the same mind, but they are modeling their relationship together out of their relationship with Christ because Christ's pattern had shown them the need for love and the need for unity. Love that is demonstrated out of genuine concern for other people. Love cares for others more than self and acts not from selfish ambition or conceit 
and doesn't look for its own interests, but rather looks to the interests to others, of others. And it would seem from verse 21 that for Paul, just as for us, there are many looking out for number one, but not Timothy. Timothy is deeply committed to the Philippian believers, and his concerns for them are the same as Christ's concerns. It's simply not that he wants them to be healthy and happy and getting along well in general terms, all of which is great, but rather he wants the central objective of Christ to be fulfilled in their lives. He wants Jesus to be exalted. He wants his name to be glorified. He wants their values to be shaped by the gospel of grace. And it is through Timothy that the believers at Philippi can see this being modeled. Through Timothy, they can see what it is like when Jesus has replaced everything else. When our gaze shifts from looking inwards at number one and starts looking upwards to the one and then starts looking out to everyone. I wonder this morning, are you, am I, sold out for Jesus, the one who is all in all? Or are we selling ourselves short? Timothy, you see, had a humble heart shaped by Christ-like love that demonstrated its character in selfless service. Because he had learned to model the because he had learned the model of dedicated discipleship from his mentor Paul. Look at verse 22, if you will. His proven character and competence were learned as a father with a son, serving alongside Paul at the cool face of the work of the gospel is where Timothy served his time. In those days, for the most part, trades were passed from father to son. The son learned by watching the father, being given small tasks to do and accomplish, gradually learning piece by piece the skill of the master craftsman. This is how Paul describes his relationship with Timothy. This is how Timothy learned from Paul. We noted at the outset of our reflection this morning, that we all, to a certain extent, replicate the, the, the behavior of others to greater or lesser degrees. We also model something to others. I wonder this morning, what are you and what am I modeling to those around me, to those in this faith community, and to those who we meet day to day as we go about our daily activities in school, college, the office, the gym, or even over a coffee. I wonder, do you and do I model compassion, humility, selflessness? Or are you a dedicated disciple of the I want, therefore I am culture all around us? Has your gaze shifted? Has my gaze shifted from the Father and the Son that we might learn all together different roles to impact the world around us. Paul says to us, as he said to the community at Philippi, look and learn. The second person that Paul highlights to the believers at Philippi needs no introduction because it's Epaphroditus who was one of their own. 
Epaphroditus had been sent uh, to bring gifts from the community at Philippi to Paul and to offer practical support to him whilst he was in prison. At some point on his journey, uh, or during his time with Paul, Epaphroditus became quite ill. In fact, so ill that he almost died. Now Paul is sending him back to his friends at Philippi with high commendation. Here's a model for them to rejoice over, to honor, to listen to, and to follow. The Philippians are encouraged to see his humility, his selflessness, and his passion for the cause of Christ. Paul calls him a brother, his fellow worker, and fellow soldier. They're two members of the one family, sharing the same priorities and contending for the same cause, the gospel. Here again, we see the importance of unity, of purpose, and conviction. Paul also refers to Epaphroditus as your messenger and minister to my need. Paul makes it clear that he holds Epaphroditus in high esteem. Further, when Epaphroditus learned that the Philippians knew that he was sick and that he was distressed, that they worried over him. The man is almost dying and he's upset that others might be burdened for their anxiety for him. That's how humility and selflessness works. And Epaphroditus models his selfless service to the extent that we read that he nearly died for the work of Christ, risking his life for the sake of serving the gospel. He was willing to risk or to gamble or even to expose himself to danger. Could you imagine what that must have been like? One can only look back and think about all those over the centuries who have laid down their lives for Christ that we can gather here this morning in such freedom and liberty to worship. Here again, Paul is saying, here is an example to follow. I wonder this morning, and I did wonder this this morning as I got out of bed, what am I willing to risk for Christ? Am I willing to risk friends' approval? Some of my creature comforts that I all too easily seem to enjoy and relish in, or even some of that me time which at times can creep in and just become so important. I wonder, are you and I more of a comfortable consumer of the culture around us that tells us, that, that tells us what we need and when to have it? Or are we shifting our gaze to something altogether different? I wonder, are you and I willing to step out of our comfort zone and be considered even odd by the uh, society around us this morning. Behavior that we choose to embrace that says, I don't need that. Or that says, I am humble in heart. That says, what can I do to you that will help me model Christ to you? Or do the words of Chesterton ring home? The Christian ideal has not been tried and found wanting. It has been found difficult 
and untried. The Christian ideal has not been tried and found wanting. It has been found difficult and untried. And yet, in the passage we have shared together, there's a third model here for the Philippian believers. And that's the model of the Apostle Paul himself. An example that he makes explicit in verse 17. And when you go home today, if you have time, why not take some time to read through all of that second chapter and reflect on the glory and the praise and the adoration that Paul offers for the life of Christ, but then also the concrete examples that he gives in order to live a life that flows out of Christ. Paul is not self-seeking. He's not looking affirmation or indeed uh, celebrity endorsement. He's not even grasping after greatness. What instead he's willing to do is to highlight others, to commend their strengths and play down their weaknesses. Paul here is not trying to pull rank, not trying to be the superstar apostle. There's no, um, there's no hint of that in the words that he shares with the Philippian believers. Rather, he too is willing to be considered odd, eccentric, or even different to the society in which he lived. And he then encourages the Philippians to do the same. In the glimpses of Paul that we have, in this chapter, as we read between the lines, we also see in him a humble submission to the will of Christ, the master that Paul is so eagerly serving. In verses 19 and 24, he says, I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy. And then he says, I trust in the Lord that shortly I myself will also come. I trust the Lord to do it. My plan is the Lord's plan for me. Not my will, but his will be done, is what Paul seems to be saying here. If it means staying here in prison, so be it. If it means martyrdom, so be it. If it means I'm released and I can come to you, so be it. It's all about your Lord and my Lord. It's not about me. Paul is saying we are dedicated disciples. We have the humility to submit our wills to the will of God and to serve him selflessly, whatever that may mean and whatever the cost it might ensue. Now, of course, you're probably sitting there saying, okay, three examples, that's great. But models are only useful if they're lived out. The inference here from Paul seems to be, go and do likewise. Paul, Timothy, and Epaphroditus are engaged in stargazing too. Their eyes are fixed on the morning star, the Lord Jesus Christ. Quite simply, these three men are looking nowhere else for instruction on how to live. Christ is all to them. And they humbly submit to him. I guess there is no easy way to follow the examples of Paul or Timothy or Epaphroditus in the world today. But it is a call that you and I are called to this morning. 
that through our serving of Jesus, our Lord and Savior, that others would see the power source behind us, that of Jesus himself. That we would seek ways that don't grasp for greatness, that don't seek 15 minutes of fame, that aren't all about me, but all together reflect him who has done so much for us. Because when we gaze on Jesus, we strangely become absorbed in the details of how he conducted his his life. And when we mirror his relationship to others in our relationships with others, we see what it truly means to have an impact on people's hearts and lives. If we gaze, we have two choices this morning. We can either gaze on the light of the world around us, or we can gaze into the light of Christ that shines above us, but yet strangely shines through us. This morning, we live in a world as the pet shop boys penned, and please forgive me because I only found this yesterday. You live in a world of excess where more is more and less is much less. A day without fame is a waste, and the question of need is a question of taste. This morning, I wonder, will you, will I be equipped by God to stare into the life of Jesus, to put down the magazines, the media screens, and just focus on what Christ is and what Christ has done for us? Fashion is fickle. Um, The diets never work. The 15 minutes of fame really turn out to be just that 15 minutes. So this morning, the challenge to you and to I is let's be counter-cultural stargazers. Let us allow the things of earth to grow strangely dim as we stare into the light of his glory and grace so that we too may shine like stars in the world around us and in doing so shed light on the power source at work within us that all may see his glory and be affected by his impact on our lives. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for all that you have richly blessed us with. Yet in a world where we have so much blessing, it is hard at times to be countercultural. Father, we pray that as we go from here this morning, to the homes that we live in, to the streets that we walk around, to the, to the places of work that we work in, that you would help us be countercultural stargazers, that our focus wouldn't be on that fad diet or the latest I whatever, but rather would be on you. Father, what a challenge this morning. Break into our lives, we pray. Show us what you would have us do and let us shine for your glory and grace. In Jesus' precious name we pray. Amen.